Well, glad to be with you folks. This is a great day, great season. Um, unlike Christmas, we know we're pretty accurate on the date for the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so it's a good place to be here as far as history is concerned. Let me jump right in so that I don't, uh, sometimes I get started and I say some other things and I wished I wouldn't have. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with what I said, but I run out of time at the end. So I'm, I'm gonna jump right in. I'm gonna ask you to turn to your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm only gonna use two texts today. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 and the end of Galatians 1, beginning of Galatians 2. And let me introduce 1 Corinthians 15 to you. Let me first make one comment. If, you know, your pastor's already told you that I teach, I've taught theology here and philosophy for a long time, decades, and you get a lot of tough questions. You folks hear tough questions. You know, and where are you on this issue? And it's always the most debated ones, right? What do you think about creation? What do you think about the end times? Uh, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Or what do you do with sovereignty and free will? And why did God command the Israelites to kill a people in Canaan? And was he really doing that? And, and sometimes we despair of being able to give answers to the toughest questions. Let me make something real simple today as far as what to concentrate on. As long as the resurrection of Jesus is true, Christianity is true. Now I don't mean it's true today and it won't be true tomorrow. I don't mean it like that, as long as. I don't mean it's gonna end. But since the resurrection occurred, and we have data, and we're gonna talk about it today, uh, and hopefully put it in an easily understandable, digestible form, I've done this lecture about 2,000 times. And I have people coming up and they'll say things like, I did your lecture, I hope I got it right, but I watched it and then I did it. I did it for my Sunday school class this week, or I did it for my youth group. And I'm saying, there is nothing you can be, to be told, I think, as a, a lecturer or a preacher or whatever, than that the stuff you're doing is ministering to people and being used over and over again. And people have opportunities to come to the Lord and do come to the Lord from it. And uh, so it's a great opportunity. Well, Paul had that opportunity in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he's gonna tell you, if Christ has been raised from the dead, Christianity's true. You don't have to answer all the tough questions. If you can, that's wonderful. Or if you have a view on them, and other Christians have other views, that's fine. But what you do with Christ is about what you do with the gospel. And whenever the gospel data are defined, there's not many times in the New Testament, you'd be surprised, the text will say we preach the gospel. But what is the gospel? What are the facts that constitute the good news? And the text almost always mention three. And they are the deity, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Deity, death, resurrection. Sometimes we say uh, death, burial, resurrection. Burial is not there all the time. I mean it happened, but I mean it's not there every time they give the definition. Deity, death, resurrection. One of my favorite verses, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, that's enough. You will be saved. Doesn't say confess Jesus as Lord and get a haircut. Confess Jesus as Lord and know where you stand on the doctrine of creation. I mean, these things are important. Um, but what we're told it makes Christianity true or false is the resurrection. Paul says, if, later in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 
He said, if Christ has not been raised, how many times do you hear this in the New Testament? Your faith is vain. Well, that's a rough one. I thought faith was what got you in the doors of the kingdom. We'll talk about what faith is in just a minute. But no, it's vain if Christ's not raised from the dead. You don't have faith till the cows come home. You're not saved. I mean, there's nothing to save you if Jesus is not raised from the dead. But if he is, it's all true. And then it's, what have you done with him? So, deity, death, resurrection. Think about that verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God's raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Many New Testament scholars say, of all the titles that Jesus had, Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, which by the way, Son of Man is a title of, de- of deity, not a title of, of manhood. It's used that way in scripture, but it's also used the deity way. And Jesus quotes the verses that use it in a deity sense, like Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It goes back to the Old Testament. Lord. Lord is a translation in Greek, Adonai. It's a translation of the Old Testament, Jehovah, or Yahweh. This is really lofty. And Paul says, so you get the point, Romans 10, 9, if you confess he's Lord, and just a few verses later, he quotes the Old Testament, and the writer is saying, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That word Lord, Jehovah. So the, if we consider the theology, they're taking the Old Testament highest word for the God of the universe and applying it to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean he and the Father are the same person. They have the same nature, deity, but they're two separate persons. So I was accused just recently, how could Jesus be the Father? We don't say Jesus is the Father. We say Jesus is the Son of the Father. But he's using the name that the Father shares too in the New Testament. And he's Lord. Translation, Jehovah. That's deity. Now, Paul said if you confess with your mouth these things, if you believe, then you're saved. What does believe mean? We uh, sometimes miss the word believe and we say, in an effort to say it's really, really simple, we sometimes make it so simple that it's not the New Testament definition. We act sometimes as if believe, and, and we have a question. Well, if believe only means just like believe, then what about I believe George Washington is the first president of the United States? Is that just as heavy a word believe? Or I believe strawberry ice cream is the best tasting ice cream? No, 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 we don't mean it that way. Well, how do you? And then once you tell the person, all you gotta do is trust Christ, the person you work with, and they say, well, you told me to believe. I believe him. I believe George Washington and Jesus. All right, now how do you walk that back? How do you go, I didn't mean like George Washington. I meant more like, and now you're in trouble because he says, no, now you're tightening things up on me after you give me the, the sale pitch. Now you wanna you know, get more out of me. No, it's the meaning of the New Testament word. And the New Testament words for believe are sometimes translated trust, faith. My Greek professor used to say John 3.16 can be translated like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever commits himself to him, same word, believe, shall not perish but have eternal life. Because in the New Testament, the, the Greek word for believe is a very strong word. It means to jump in with both feet. It means to commit yourself to, it means to rely upon. 
It means all of you for all of him. And I think the closest we get in scripture to this is the idea of marriage. And we see those words, I do. And I do is a commitment. It's not a work, it's not good work. You're not, say, you're not married by good work, you're married by making a commitment. And that's the New Testament word for believe. And I think it's no coincidence that in the, both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the children of Israel and the church, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that say they're the same, but both the children of Israel and the church, they're called the bride. And God is the groom. And when Israel fell away in certain texts, the text said, you're being unfaithful to me. You're the unfaithful wife. See, it's in a marriage context, and we get married by I do. I told a story, especially being here today, Jonathan's father, my uh, wife died in 19, I, we were here, but my wife died in 1995 of stomach cancer, mother of my four children, and, and uh, I got married to a, a family friend who, member of Thomas Rubb, and we were married, and, and uh, Jerry Jr., I'm sorry, Jerry Sr., married us. And you know, sometimes he, he, get, he, he was having fun with us, and he was giving that little sermonette during the message, and he said, Gary, you're about ready to make a commitment here in a couple of minutes, and when you say, I do, everything you own belongs to your wife. And my wife, gowning and everything, everybody present, she said out loud, and she's quiet, really quiet by nature, but she said out loud, she goes, yes. <laughs> and that's what everybody did, they laughed. But, but get his point, you're about ready to give it all up. Well, actually it's more like share it, right? But you're voting with your feet, you're, you're talking with your mouth, but you're making a commitment. For better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health till death do we part. That's a commitment, and that's the New Testament sense of belief. So in the first two verses, Paul says, when I came to you, I preached the gospel. If you confess to the mouth that Jesus the Lord, believe not that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And if you believed, jumped in with both feet, said I do, then you're saved, and if not, you're not. He, that says it just that way, first two verses. And then here's where he goes in 15.3. And this is the key resurrection passage most scholars think in the entire New Testament. Paul says, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12. And in this list that comes, it's the most appearances run together in one phrase. You have to, usually in the Gospels, you're gonna to go to one to another to another when Jesus appears. But here it's just, it's strung out in a statement. He appears to Peter. There's two individuals in the list, Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and three groups. The 12, all the apostles, which is a bigger group, and 500 at one time. And then Paul adds his name to the list at the end. Paul's name was not originally in this list, he even says himself in this passage, he says, um, I'm kind of a Johnny come lately. The word he uses for what he is, is the word for abortion. He is a latecomer. He's a, uh, and he said, I don't even deserve to be called the apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. But he adds his name to the end in verse eight. So you have the three individuals, 
Peter, James, and Paul in three groups. And it's a great passage. It's, it's, it actually looks like, according to many scholars, even skeptical ones, that it predates Paul's conversion on the way to Damascus. When he was going to Damascus, this verse was already being preached by the other apostles. Paul says himself in verse three, this isn't mine. He said, I gave you what I was given. I, I told the group today, we would call this a footnote. When you quote somebody, you gotta give them you know, attribution. And Paul's saying, I got it from somebody else. Okay, what I'm gonna do this morning is take up the whole stage like your pastor said I could do. And I'm gonna walk down here, we're gonna be walking back and forth so I don't use PowerPoint. I did this, it was at Oxford one time and I was doing this lecture and the guy said, uh, one of the Brits said, now I know why you don't use a, I have a PowerPoint, but I quit using it. And he said, I know why you quit using the PowerPoint. He said, you're a human PowerPoint. Um, I'm gonna be a human PowerPoint this morning. Creation's down there. 2022 is out those doors and down there a long way. This is 30 AD, the date that's usually given for the death of Jesus. And if you ask the average Christian, if this event means everything to you and it's true because of this and false without it, how do you know it's true? What evidence does Paul give or anybody else? And the average Christian says, they'll say, usually the first gospel is said to be, first gospel written, gospel of Mark. And it's dated usually in the 60s to about 70 AD. You subtract 30, and this book is 35 or 40 years after Jesus dies. Matthew is next, usually said about 10 years later. Now, evangelicals often put it back in the 60s, but I'm using the verses the critics use just to show you it doesn't change anything. 10 more years doesn't change anything. Luke is 85, and everybody, even evangelicals, think John is about 95. 95 subtract 30. This is only 65 years later. Now, I did this this morning, let me do it again. Sometimes people say, 65 years. You can't remember things for 65 years. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're going, well, I don't know if I want to admit this, but I remember things from more than 65 years ago. I do. Now, what about marriage, birth of a child, a really major event in your life, maybe someone's death, but you remember it like it was yesterday, and it was at least 65 years ago. How many of you remember things just fine and you could give the details and people with a movie camera or something in those days would, you'd see that the events are true. How many of you remember things from at least 65 years ago? You were witnesses. A lot of hands this time, larger group than this morning. A lot of hands going up. 65 is not that long. But Mark's doing it at just 35 or 40. Okay, how many of you remember things like the birth of a child or saying I do from 35 or 40 years ago? How many of you? Oh, now we just doubled or tripled them. Okay, that's not long. But critics, like in a lot of things, critics play fast and loose with Christian things, but they don't criticize other fields for being way worse. If this is the death of Alexander about three centuries before Jesus, Alexander the Great, 
the earliest biography for Alexander. There are actually some autobiographies, not, not autobiographies, but there are actually biographies of Alexander done by eyewitnesses, generals, but we don't have them anymore. They may show up in a monastery someday where they kept not just Christian literature, but the monks copied other things. They may show up someday, but we don't have them now. And the earliest on that schedule, with Alexander dying there and trying to stay in the same steps where the Gospels are, the first biography of Alexander the Great and sometimes I'm in churches I often do this down on the floor do the lecture and I walk up the side and go all the way back to the auditorium the earliest biography of Alexander the Great is 280 years later and critics are complaining about John at plus 65 Alexander's plus 280 the best biographies of Alexander are by two historians, Arian and Plutarch, and they are 425 to 450 years after Alexander died. Not AD, because he died hundreds of years BC, but they're writing about, about 120 AD, and it's about 425 to 450 years later. That is almost half a millennium. And people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't you know about Alexander? He's from Macedonia. His father was the great Philip. You know, some people say the most unique combination of people in two different fields happened to Alexander the Great. You may know this. Does anybody know? Shout this out if you know it. Who was Alexander's personal tutor? Who said? Aristotle. Could you imagine this? Alex, Aristotle's here. He's gonna give you your lesson today. Oh, how do we know that? Well, I don't know, not an early source. Now, nobody doubts Alex, Alex, uh, Aristotle was his teacher and Philip of Macedon was his father. They took over the whole known world in his 20, by his 20s probably the greatest military leader who ever lived up in the time, and maybe even, I mean, you know, another rival later might be Julius Caesar, but a, a major league military player in his 20s. How do we know all that stuff? By these books that are, I was in a church one time and I walked out that side door just to keep show them it was really long and the door locked. <laughs> I literally had to come over and knock on the door during the service and a person, laughing comes over and lets me in so I can finish my lecture. But it's a long time, up to 425 to 50 years for the two best sources. And they're gonna complain about Jesus. The gospels, I'm giving you two arguments for the resurrection. One uses the gospel sources. They're early, we have good backup for what the gospels are, it's a long story. You take New Testament classes here to learn this, or maybe a whole class on the four gospels, or maybe a whole class on the gospel of John. And as you do more graduate level courses, you just specialize more, and you can easily do a whole book on the Gospel of Mark or, or a whole class on the Gospel of Mark or John. A lot of data there. I'm gonna use a different argument today. It starts from here and goes over. Now this is from the Apostle Paul. Paul's epistles are written before the Gospels are. Paul's epistles are usually dated from 50 to about 56 or 60-ish A.D. 
and he's very close to the gospel, up to the original events. Plus, he was an unbeliever. So we have what we call enemy attestation, somebody from the other side who was a witness. Now, when Paul responds in Galatians 1 and 2, the other passage I mentioned to you, he talks about this event. He says, Jesus, you know, whole gospel. He's Lord. He calls him Lord. He calls him Son of God. He calls him uh, uh uh, he doesn't call him son of man. That's Jesus' favorite name for himself. Another title of deity. Deity. We, some pastors sometimes say son of man is his human nature and son of God is his divine nature. Actually, both refer to his deity. And Paul knew those things, although he didn't call him son of man. That's one of the most interesting things. Jesus, no epistle calls Jesus son of man, and yet it was Jesus' favorite name for himself which is another evidence that we have that right from Jesus himself. So Paul's teaching these things, but right here he's a Pharisee. And Josephus was a Pharisee, the early Jewish historian. And he tells us about the Pharisees and how they repeated to get points across and they repeated creeds, they repeated early traditions. And in the mouth of eyewitnesses, these things were established. And when you're doing ancient history, Early eyewitnesses are very, very important. And Paul, after this event, Paul's persecuting Christians in this place right in here a few years later. But Paul comes to the Lord, his, his trip to Damascus is placed, even by critical scholars, they agree with uh, evangelicals, at about plus two or plus three. So just two years after the crucifixion, Paul becomes Christian. Now, if you're following this in the book of Acts, Acts 9 is the first of three testimonies of Paul. That's like saying Acts 2 happened, uh, Acts 9 happened two to three years after the cross. So Paul's on the way to Damascus, and he meets Jesus. And three years later, he says, this is Galatians 1, verse 18, he goes up to Jerusalem to do research. What? Yeah, it's like going to the library, only it was way, way better. He went to interview the eyewitnesses. He went to interview the guys who were going to write the books. And Peter's there. James, the brother of Jesus, there. This is not James, the son of Zebedee. He's, he's martyred. He's the first disciple to die. You say, what about Stephen? Well, Stephen wasn't one of the 12. He was certainly a disciple in the more generic sense. But he wasn't one of the 12. James, and not counting Judas, is suicide. James is the first martyr among the apostles. It's Acts chapter 12. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter are there. Now, if you were Paul, and you know, Paul could be kind of bold sometimes, right? He would ask people tough questions, and he would be tough sometimes. He would say, uh, shape up before I come to your town, because I don't want to have to take care of this when I get there in person. He says that in his epistles, you may remember. So what would Paul have done with Peter and James? He spent 15 days with them. And in Galatians chapter one, verse 18, there's a neat Greek word. And I'm not trying to impress you with Greek, but this is a word to really understand if you're witnessing to people. The Greek word is hysteresi, but the root word you all know the root word, it was transliterated into English, is 
H-I-S-T-O-R. It's the Greek word from which we get the English word history. And it's usually translated here in Galatians. Paul was going to interview James and Peter. He spent 15 days with them. Now, if you're going to interview the disciples, what do you want to ask them? The two biggest names at that time, Peter and James, what are you going to ask? Paul was kind of bold. I, I kind of picture Paul doing this. Uh, James, don't want to embarrass you. Uh, I hear that uh, you, weren't a, you weren't a believer when your brother was preaching. Actually, much stronger than that, Mark 3, Mark 6, John 7 tell us that Jesus' brothers were not believers. In fact, Mark 3, the townspeople, when he came back home, the townspeople thought he was nuts. The Greek word is beside himself. Like there's two of them, two minds, like schizophrenia or something. They thought he was mentally ill. And the family seems to go along with it because the brothers tried to get him out of the view. It's sort of like, come on, come on, you're embarrassing us. And they didn't believe. Sorry, James, just being honest. I want to know what was it like when, in 1 Corinthians 15, the list, what was it like when you met the risen Jesus? What was it like? Peter, don't want to dog you, man, but I hear you denied your Lord three times. I heard when he predicted your death, his death and resurrection, you said, no way, I'll go with you to my death. You're not dying. Not trying to slam you, Peter, because I was worse than both of you. I persecuted the church. I'm not fit to be called an apostle. He wasn't one of the 12, but he's... Remember the definition of apostle? Somebody had to have been a witness of the ministry of Jesus. Now, as far as we know, Paul didn't see that ministry per se, but the last phrases in Acts, when they, when they chose Matthias to take Judas's place, it says, one must be a witness of the resurrection. And Paul met the risen Jesus. So Peter, you denied him three times. Now, don't worry guys, I'm not getting on your case, because I'm worse than you. I was a persecutor. I don't deserve to be called an, an apostle, and I would never say that about you two gentlemen. But James, if I could go back to you for a minute. What did you think when you joined the Christians? You know, at the cross, Jesus gave his mother to his disciple, John, not to his brother, James. Even, well, James was there, but I mean, he didn't say, Mom, go and live with James. He tells John to take her into his house, into his home. I've, some people have said, well, it may just be because James wasn't there physically. But it could also have been because he wanted his mom with a believer. But guess what happens? Jesus dies right there. He's on the cross when this happens. He dies moments later. Jesus is on the earth for 40 days, appearing, as Luke tells us in Acts 1-3. Then he ascends. We're 10 days away from Pentecost at this point. This is when Peter preaches his fam famous sermon in Acts chapter two, first Christian sermon. I mean, Christian sermon after Jesus is gone. He's preaching his first sermon. Thousands of people come to the Lord. But just before that, over 100 of the young disciples were in what we call the upper room. 
and it says the mother of Jesus and the boys were there. Mary and their brothers were there. Somewhere between the resurrection and that upper room, it appears, is the time when James met the risen Jesus. Would that shake you up if you were James and you thought your brother was nuts? And all of a sudden, I, I don't mean to be cute, cute, but just to put it in the vernacular, I picture Jesus saying, alone in the room, I picture Jesus saying, bro, it's me. I didn't make these things up. And you notice they're healed. I'm raised. What's James gonna say? Oh my, what have I missed? Did he fall down on his knees and grab, grab Jesus by the cloak? I, I don't know. But it must have been a very touching time. We're told in the Gospels that, that Jesus looked over at that point, maybe being rushed off after the trial, but he looked over at Peter after Peter denied him three times and Peter realized he'd been caught and he went out and wept bitterly. Peter, what was it like to be reinstituted, to be asked by Jesus, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs? Almost like those promises corresponded to nullify his, his denials or something. Guy's not getting on your case, but we've had issues, the three of us. And I often put a pastoral footnote here and I'll say, here's the theme. Think about those three men, James, Peter, and Paul. Jesus redeems wounded lives. Jesus even takes into leadership people who've made a lot of big mistakes. I mean, did you think Jesus was nuts and did you divorce yourself from him before you came to Christ? Did, did you tell your friends there's no way he's the son of God, you denied him? Did you persecute Christians? And here they are. And two of them are pastors of the largest church in the ancient world, and the third one's the major disciple to the Gentiles. These events are fantastic, and they're just, again, Paul comes at plus two or plus three, and he specifically says, three years later, I went up there to, to interview these fellows. And then he says in Galatians 2, first 10 verses, I went back up. 14 years later, this is still before the first New Testament book is written, which is probably 1 Thessalonians, probably 50 AD, maybe 48. And he goes back up. And Galatians 2, 2 is one of the weirdest verses in the New Testament. Paul says, it's a head scratcher. Paul says, I went up there to talk to the, those who were pillars in the church, he said, to set before them the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. What? Yeah, I was giving them the gospel I was preaching. I wanted to be on the same page, so I asked them if this is the same gospel they're preaching. You know, we can be critical and say, you, you, this is your second trip up there. You're really going the extra mile in this research. But Paul could say, hey, it's only the gospel. It's what makes Christianity true. If you said I do, you're in. If not, you're out. I want to be sure. And who's there? Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and there's another member, the disciple John. Why am I saying this? Well, first of all, John didn't have any issues like the other three did. He's the apostle whom Jesus loved. 
and they're the four most influential Christians of all time. Think about how many New Testament books. Think about their testimony. Think about Paul being, he's variously called the greatest theologian or the greatest missionary of all time. They're there together. And what was their response when Paul said, hey, you all with me on the gospel? A few words later, you read these five words in English. They added nothing to me. They did tell him a few verses later, hey, by the way, be good to the poor. We want you to take care of the poor. But that wasn't, part, that wasn't the gospel definition. They'd already given it. They added nothing to me. And in verse 9, they presumably lay hands on Paul and Barnabas. He says, Paul says they gave us the right hand of fellowship. That's where we get that. And you don't lay hands on heretics. But Paul and Barnabas get the blessing and the word is you take this to the Gentiles, we'll take it to the church. Beautiful time, but they added nothing to me. They're getting the gospel here and the big guys agree. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 11, right after the verses we read, Paul says, after reporting the appearances to the apostles, he says, whether it is them or whether it is me, we all preach the same thing. I don't care who you ask. You have a question? Hey, you live next door to Peter? Ask him. You don't have to come to me. Talk to James. Talk to John. Hey, these guys spent long, longer time with the master than I did. I'll tell you my testimony, but ask them. We're all teaching the same message. Isn't that great? In the church, there's unanimity on the story that you need to believe in the deity death, resurrection of Jesus, to which we kick in our part, which is the I do. In a sense, like in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the groom, church is the bride, we're saying I do. And you remember marriage, both sides make the commitment. God's already, you know, he's on our side. And we commit our lives at that marriage ceremony, quote unquote, when you say I do to Jesus. And again, it's no coincidence that throughout the scripture, God's the groom and Israel and the church are the bride. So this early message, Paul gets it here, gets everybody on board, it's only plus 14, but he already got everybody on board at five or six, depending on whether it's conversions two or three years after. They're all on board here at plus five or six. This is 35 or 36 AD. And then Paul ends the chapter like this. If you flip down to the end, it's the longest continuous teaching of the resurrection in the New Testament. It's also the earliest teaching, of, of at least a, a lengthy one. 58 beautiful verses. Uh, Luke 24 is almost as long, but it's a little, little shorter than this. And Paul's first, too. And Paul says three things. Pastoral commitments. This isn't the fabled, uh, three-point sermon, it's just Paul had three points here. And the first thing he says is, stand steadfast. I was in another conference yesterday down in South Carolina, and I was speaking on the resurrection, and one of the plenary sessions they had for the people there, was a big group of people, and they were asking, why are so many people falling away today? Why is there such a fall away from the church? Not just people not attending, people renouncing their views people um, going the other way. And when they go, 
the people who were up there had all made that step. They were, all three of them were famous players in Christian bands. And we've had them here on campus. And they told what would happen inside the music industry and what's going on and how a very secular spirit is coming in among many of the musicians. And you have firsthand testimony here. And they were saying it was so easy to play to the, to the world. And you want to make money. And sometimes the people who owned the band were not Christians and they would say, hey, you said enough against abortion. Um, I, let, let's leave that out of the conversation for now on. And they would change their message because they were told we want to make money and we don't want to keep saying these, these you know, we're woke and we want to change. We want to change some of these things you Christians are always about. And they started changing the people personally. And we heard the testimonies from some pretty big people and they had everybody enthralled with what goes on behind the scenes. Not always, but why are people falling away today? That was their topic. Paul says, stand steadfast. Now I can't think of a better topic to be steadfast on than the resurrection. Because of this, you've got it. Don't fall away. You've got it. I'm not, I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm saying, don't get put on the shelf. Don't let people take it away from you. Don't let, peop, don't let your boss tell you, uh, I don't want to hear you use those words anymore. This is my, my shop and uh, do it my way. Be steadfast. Second rule. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Hey, do you know how Paul, you know Paul's a Baptist? The next verse, there weren't chapter dividings in these books. That's the way we divided them so we could find them. 58 is followed by 16.1. And 16.1, Paul says, by the way, we've got a bunch of poor believers in Jerusalem. We're going to pass the plate again. We want to take up an offering for the poor saints. I mean, bless them. And that's what they told him. Remember they said, take care of the poor? He was taking up another offering. That's pretty cool. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I personally believe that while you don't get a step closer to the Lord before salvation with good works, after salvation, I believe everything you do with Christ determines the capacity to which you will enjoy eternity. There's rewards. Jesus said, a cup of water, last verse in Matthew 10, a cup of water in the name of a disciple will be rewarded. A cup of water? What about a message? What about preaching your pastor? What about witnessing at work? What about, what about, what about? The Lord rewards works, that's two. The third one, you gotta back up a verse or two before 58. And Paul's making some conclusions about death. And they go like this. Paul says, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Okay, a lot of people think this is like poetry. It's in the Old Testament. He's quoted in the Old Testament. Where's your sting? But Paul's not doing poetry. Read the commentaries. He's trash talking the devil. See, when we don't want our boys to trash talk, because it's a, when you trash talk, it's about me. Paul wasn't talking about himself. He was bragging about his Lord. And it goes like this. Well, here's what Paul's saying. Death! You got something for me? What? You got nothing. You got nothing. You think you're big boss, everybody dies. Well, hey, I know the guy who broke the mold and he offered me eternal life. I'm just saying. You got, what? 
Yeah, I know, you can hurt me. Paul calls him the God of this world. A lot of power, but not as much as God. You're going down. You're going down. Today we'd say, look at the score. <laughs> You're losing. You can hurt me. I don't care. I'll just get more rewards. He literally says that. I'll just get more rewards. It hurts. But the Lord will take care of me. But you are a loser. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Come on, big boy, where are you now? That's what is going on in those last verses if you read the commentaries. And it's all because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. That's the gospel. And Paul was defending him and saying, we've got the goods, you don't have them. Not because we're great. It's been given to us, praise God, by his grace. But you've lost. You thought you'd keep him in the grave. You didn't make it. I saw him alive. And I know the other guys who've seen him alive. You're going down. Folks, let me leave you with this. Let me leave you where I, where I started. If you know the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus are true, there's no other message you need. The, the Bible's great. Learn it. Take courses. Do it. But as far as your salvation, you got the basis for it right there. If Christ was raised from the dead, Christianity is true, 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 all the time, every day, and every way. If the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true. And today, what Gary has done for us uh, in, in a way that I think is just really like brings it to life is giving that story of talking about like from the very moment that Christ rose from the grave, people began telling the story. And we don't have to sit back and wonder like how far removed was it from the moment? Like, is it true? Is it accurate? Is it real? Like from the moment that it happened, people began telling the story. Here's why. Because when people encounter the risen Lord, it changes everything. Now, the reason that's important today is because I know there's some people in this room, there may be some people watching right now, that maybe, perhaps, you've never encountered the risen Lord. That you've never come to that place where you said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that He died and that He rose again. Now, you heard, as He shared a moment ago from that verse in 58 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it tells us, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But if you go back a verse, you'll find in that statement, after it says, a grave, where's your sting? Where's your victory? Here's, here's what the passage says. Paul writes, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you might be seated here, you might be watching, you might be listening, and you've never come to that place where you've said, yeah, I, I believe. And oh, does it make a difference. Oh, does it make a difference. And so I just want to encourage you today, like maybe you came here today, you heard, you know, this story, you saw this timeline, you got this picture of like all the conversations you, you've recognized that while the critics might say, yeah, you can believe something was written 400 years after someone died. But man, when it comes to the gospel, that's a different story. Hey, today, all measures tell us this. The resurrection is true. And remember, if the resurrection is true, then what follows? Then Christianity is true. And what follows that? If Christianity is true, 
then that means that by believing in Jesus, we have the hope and the promise of eternity in heaven. It's sitting at the right hand, looking into the face of God. But it also means this, that if we die without Christ, then that means that we will spend a very real eternity in a real place called hell. So here's the question. What are you going to do with that story? And if you're here today and you're a Christian, like you say, yeah, I believe. Maybe today what it's been is just kind of like a reminder, like, hey, this is a big deal. And yeah, we've got to make sure we tell the story because there are people that you will encounter even today, whether it's in a restaurant or a store or your neighborhood or maybe even in your own home that you will encounter that need to hear that story. I hope today what you've been encouraged and challenged to do is like, hey, I want to talk about the resurrection. They did it then. Instantly, they began telling the story that today, man, maybe you've been reminded, yeah, I got to tell people. Or maybe you came today and you've never made that decision. Maybe today you've never been in a place where you've said, yes, I believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he died and that he rose again. Good news. Good news. Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 that all we must do is believe in our hearts, confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, that he was raised from the dead, that we walk away from the sin of rejecting Christ and we embrace the fact that he rose again and that he is the only one that can save us. And so with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed right now, I'm gonna pray a brief and a simple prayer that calls into action exactly what God promises to do, what he desires to do. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if that's true, then what that means is that he came for you. And so today, I'm just going to encourage you, if you've never done that, that you just take the opportunity today to, to pray this prayer silently from your heart to God's along with me in this moment, asking God to do exactly what he wants to do, and that's to save you. So silently from your heart to God's, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus is the only one that can save me. I believe that he is your son. I believe that he died and that he rose again. Forgive me of my sin. Save me today through your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer in a moment when we adjourn in this service, I encourage you to make your way down and you can talk with one of our team members, one of our, our, our pastors, our counselors. Are here. We'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, to help you as you begin this journey. If you're watching right now, Man, I encourage you to connect with us online. Give us a call. We'd love to, to celebrate with you what God has done and is going to continue to do in and through your lives because it makes a difference. But guys, next week, you know this, it's Easter. And we know that in churches, not only like this one, but churches all over the world, there are gonna be a lot of people who walk into the doors of these churches that maybe this week they're not in church. That maybe this might be the one time they show up. Man, I want you to be praying praying that God would speak to their hearts next week. But I also want you in advance of that to recognize like, hey, you can make a difference. Last week you were here, many of you, and you watched as we baptized 38 people last week. And one of those that we baptized last week was an atheist. And he had been being bugged by a friend of his to come to church, come to church, come to church. I mean, he's like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And finally he gave in and he showed up a couple of weeks ago. 
And when he walked into this room, it happened to be the day that we were talking about the doctrine of salvation, which by the way, every week we're talking about salvation. But he came in and he heard that message. And at the end of that message, he got saved. An atheist came to Christ, baptized last week. Now here's why I tell you that story. I tell you that because today and every day this week, you're going to encounter people that maybe are in the same boat that he was in. And what got them to the room was the fact that someone cared enough to say, hey, why don't you go with me? And so invite people to come. We've got some cards out in the lobby you can pick up and take with you. Invite people to bring, man, let's sit with them next week. Like make this a thing that you are praying about and actively participating in. We want to see God do an incredible thing next week a revival to break out. And that's a big thing that all of us need to be a part of. Now next week, remember our services are 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock. Make sure you're here. Make sure you're early. It's going to be a great day. We have children's programs and the 9.30 and 11 o'clock. The elementary kids, though, are going to come in here and worship with us here in this room. And we've got a gift for every one of them. So they're going to have a great day. It's going to be a lot of fun. On this Friday, on Good Friday, we have an event over in the Bruner Hall from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. where it's a communion time. You can come together, and on Good Friday, we can pray with one another. We can uh, observe communion at the Lord's table together. I encourage you to come on out anytime during that time to be a part of that. It's going to be a great week, and it's going to be a great week this week, not because of what Thomas Road is doing. It's a great week this week because just like every other week, Jesus Christ today is alive because the resurrection is true and therefore let's go change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless you and have a great day. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition of being a sinner and needing a savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask him to save you today. Now, if you'd like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of his son, Jesus, we'd love to chat with you about that information. I would encourage you to email me at the address that is on the screen. It's pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. If you'd also like to help contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love. Help us let people know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, and that we can find hope in Jesus.